You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. December 31st, 1965. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson went live to ring in the new year. It was a hell of a lineup. Johnny's guest tonight, or Woody Allen. Well, for 1965 it was. There was also William Walker, a regular Tonight Show guest and baritone opera singer who also cut this track called Playin' the Game from a wild experiment to combine opera and pop music called The Naked Carmen. Then there was Israeli supermodel and, yeah, well, fine, let's say actor, Gila Galan, who was there to promote her role as a pleasure unit in the 1966 low-rent James Bond knockoff B-roll, Our Man Flint. My sole purpose in life is to bring pleasure to my companions. My sole purpose in life is to bring pleasure to my companions. Okay, (laughs) okay, I know. It is not sounding like so great a lineup after all. But Johnny also had the Muppets. The Muppets! Everybody loves the Muppets. Anyway, there was one other guest on the live New Year's Tonight show of 1965-66, and I will let Johnny introduce him. We thought tonight, since the New Year is only about 17, 18 minutes away, that we would invite a gentleman who has been with us before. He, uh, He always entertains us with some of his startling predictions, so we thought we would get a jump on everybody and find out what Criswell will predict for 1966. Would you welcome Criswell? Criswell, otherwise known as the Amazing Criswell, otherwise known as Charles Criswell King, otherwise known as Jaron Criswell King, otherwise known as Jaron Criswell Koenig. If the Amazing Criswell rings a bell for you, it's probably because of his role in Plan 9 from Outer Space, sometimes called the worst movie ever made. Criswell played himself as the psychic narrator of Ed Wood's infamous schlock masterpiece. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. In Tim Burton's biopic of Ed Wood, Jeffrey Jones plays Criswell. It's not a great likeness. The real Criswell is just too unnervingly handsome, always kept like a Ken doll in a tuxedo with a long tail and a shock of blonde hair tamed into a swishing spit curl. Now, Criswell was only ever a minor celebrity, but even that seems totally inexplicable because the amazing Criswell was so very far from amazing. I'm not going to spend any time on his early biographical details because they're all furnished by Criswell himself and pretty surely all bullshit, too. One way or another, he ended up in L.A. selling his own line of vitamins in the early 1950s. 
To advertise them, he started buying up airtime on a local TV channel. And to catch viewer attention, not to mention fill out the time he'd purchased, he soon began padding his commercials with a short segment called Criswell Predicts. Against all logic and reason, people took notice of Criswell's predictions. Maybe it was the spit curl, or maybe it was that mellifluous baritone of his. Or maybe it was his friendship with Mae West, who seems to have done most of the heavy lifting for his career, including recording this positive banger of a song. Turned on my television to Lucky Channel 13. Tuned in Mr. Criswell, he sure was on the beam. With his predictions, with his convictions of what the future will be. And it made a lot of sense to me. I don't know what it was that made Criswell work. I just know, I know deep in my heart, that it couldn't have been the actual prediction that impressed people. Because they are... Ugh, well, listen to Criswell make some predictions about 1966 on The Tonight Show. Uh, a Happy New Year to you, Criswell. It is a great honor again to be with you and all of your friends on New Year's Eve of 1965. What you can't see, but I'm pretty sure I can, is the look on Johnny Carson's face as he realizes that this bit is a lead balloon. There is no saving it. He eventually leans back as if to say, well, it's a live broadcast, so whatever. My first prediction is that I predict that the year of 1966 will be a year of tricks. Deceit and deception, 1966. He knows. Yeah. And I further Our has been working on his expense account already. <laughs> <laughs> it's be a bad, bad year. Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt here. I further predict that many executives will go on strike in protest against the many new union regulations. Well, what kind of executives? Just executives in general? The average executive, yes. Have our NBC executives gone on? No. They were protesting last week, remember? They, were they? They burned their washroom keys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I predict a family coat of arms will be the new fad in America. Yes, a new family American pride in your own personal family right here in America. And the family coat of arms will be your number one fad for 1966. That's interesting. Do you have a coat of arms? No, I, my, I have one. I'm not aware of it. But I'm going to get one tomorrow. Coats of arms and executive strikes? Man, if you're going to the future, you'd better bring a book. It sounds boring. His 1970 record, Your Incredible Future, manages to get a little bit spicier. I further predict the new age of nudity, for the human body will be glorified. Body design, self-painted, will take up most of your spare time. Women will decorate their breasts with startling colors, while men will decorate their genitals. Painted penises for all. But what to do with the sperm within the penis? I predict every able-bodied man in America will be asked to contribute to a sperm bank. This will later be used in artificial insemination if and when a holocaust should occur. This sperm bank will be open 24 hours a day, and a night depository would be accepted. Accepted? I'm thinking the night depository is going to be peak hours, Criswell. Did I have a point? Was there a reason I was talking about this guy? Oh yeah, the book. 
Well, the first book, actually. He wrote four or five of them. But the first was called, simply, Criswell Predicts. And it is a doozy. There's a lot of homophobia and sexism to be found in it, and it creeps up in weird places. Like when Criswell predicts that Fidel Castro will be assassinated on August 9th, 1970, but makes a point of saying he'll be killed by a woman. Which might just sound like a plain statement, but trust me, in the context of his other predictions, it is very telling. Anyway, the reason I'm talking about Criswell and his first book isn't for his misogynist predictions or even for his very quickly and precisely wrong predictions, like that Reagan will get out of politics and never run for president. Oh, if only Criswell. No, we're here for his apocalyptic predictions. There's no connective tissue binding Criswell's many predictions, no ecumenical system or reasoned chain of cause and effect. Instead, each statement exists in a hermetic seal, totally unencumbered and uninfluenced by the predictions surrounding it. So, providing a comprehensible timeline of the end of the world as envisioned by Criswell takes some filling in the dots. The end begins with the Great Drought of 1977, which stretches on for 10 months, drying out the Great Lakes and putting an end to both the city of New York and the state of Kansas. Although, a few pages later, Criswell says that Wichita will become the new U.S. capital and be rebuilt underground, so I guess it's not all bad, Kansas. Earlier in the book, Criswell tells us that the planet will be seized by tidal waves of Earth, which will bulge the land in such a way that highways will buckle, foundations will tip, elevators will fall, electricity, power, and gas will cease, and, most terrifyingly of all, quote, when you pour a cup of coffee or a glass of water, the rim will not level. Oh, the humanity. Criswell doesn't provide a timeline for this calamity, but we're left to assume it must occur after the state of Vermont is nuked in 1981, which naturally means it'll be after the week of November 28, 1980, when Pittsburgh is overtaken by cannibals. It must be after October 18, 1988, when London is destroyed by a meteor. And it can't come before June 9th, 1989, when an unexplainable ray from space hits Denver, Colorado, turning the whole city into jelly for all time. But the global earthquakes must come sometime before Wednesday, August 18th, 1999. Because Wednesday, August 18th, 1999 is, according to Criswell, the day the world ends. On that morning, as I'm sure you remember, we all awoke to find the sky covered by a black rainbow, which encircled the world and sucked away all Earth's oxygen like a huge snake feeding upon the air, as we, the people of the once great planet, sputtered, weakened, and eventually submitted to suffocation and an eternal silence that ruled this rock for all time to come. Wednesdays, right? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. If you've woken up any time in the last few months thinking, is that a black oxygen-sucking rainbow enveloping the sky, or is it just me, that I'm here to tell you, it is both. I'm, I'm fairly certain it's both. The economy is in the toilet, the president is talking about not having an election, and the coronavirus is still ravaging the planet with no signs of abatement. It feels, sometimes, like we're living through the end of the world. 
right? Well, here's the silverest lining I can give you. As best as I can tell, it has always felt like we're living through the end of the world. Spin a wheel, roll some dice, throw a dart, whatever year you pick in all of human history, I will bet you somebody thought it was the last one. And for better or worse, they've all been wrong so far. Over the course of this show, we've already talked about a few of those years. Like when Camille Flammarion convinced people that Halley's Comet would kill them all in 1910. And we've covered the great disappointment of the Millerites, uh, several times. At least three. But there are so many more stories of the world not coming to an end left to explore. So, here's a few of them. This week's episode, Apocalypse Now and Then. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Joanna Southcott led an average life. She was born and raised in Devon in 1750. She worked for her father on the small family farm up until the point her mother died. Then she moved from Giddesham to Honiton to make money as a shop girl, and then to Exeter, where she was taken on as a domestic for a while. And that's about all we can say about Joanna Southcott's first 42 years of life. And even some of that brief bio is in question. Then things changed. According to her own writings, in 1792, she heard a still, small voice that told her to join the Wesleyans, whom she soon told about the voice. It was, she said, the voice of God. The Wesleyans didn't appreciate that, so Joanna struck out on her own, writing rhyming prophecies as the voice commanded. She identified herself to her growing number of followers in Exeter as the woman clothed with the sun, i.e., the woman of the apocalypse, described in the book of Revelation. She came to London, where her following swelled. She and her disciples were known to sell printed seals that she said guaranteed the purchaser's place among the 144,000 elected who would ascend to heaven. Joanna got pretty close to filling up the arena. At the height of her popularity, there were said to be around 100,000 Southcottians. Then, things escalated. In 1814, Joanna Southcott announced that she was pregnant with the new Messiah, whose birth would touch off the end times. Naturally, some were suspicious, not least of which because Joanna was 64 years old. But when a team of nine doctors was convened to examine her, six of them admitted she seemed to be with child. That got people really worked up. For every follower Southcott had had, she had at least two detractors, including Charles Dickens, who jokes about her in the first chapter of Tale of Two Cities. But now, with the medical establishment basically conceding that she was harboring a miracle child within her womb, concern over the coming end of days grew. Expensive gifts were sent to the expectant mother of God, a crib valued at 200 pounds sterling, in 1814. The Morning Chronicle announced that an unnamed benefactor had offered housing for the second Christ child, the Temple of Peace in Green Park, 
which had been built in 1749 to celebrate the end of the War of Austrian Succession. Joanna didn't take the anonymous patron up on the offer, and a good thing, too, since it burned down not long after. But by then, Joanna was already dead. She had said she would give birth on October 19th, and her believers congregated in mass before her dwelling. But no child came. Those attending to her told the crowds that the baby, Shiloh, had been born a spirit and immediately ascended into heaven away from the clutches of the beast. As for Joanna, they said she was in a trance. It seems she never again left it. The best guess is that Joanna Southcott suffered some sort of serious medical problem that caused her abdomen to swell. Possibly gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, a rare cancer that can mimic the appearance of pregnancy. Whatever it was, it killed her, sometime before December 27, 1814, which was when her followers finally were convinced by the smell of rot that she was not going to be resurrected. She was buried at St. John's Wood in January of 1815. Yet, Joanna Southcott went on to play key posthumous parts in two other non-apocalypses. The first was of her own devising. Southcott had predicted the world would finally come to an end in 2004, and she had left behind something to help the future weather the end times. For years, she had been placing prophecies within a sealed box that she charged to be opened only in a time of national crisis, and only in the presence of 24 Anglican bishops. Whether this box actually existed, or exists, is hard to say. The Southcottian movement continues in small numbers even today, and over the centuries it has made numerous failed attempts to convince the bishops of the Church of England to open the box, including during the Crimean and First World War. Today, a small group of Southcottians called the Panacea Society say that they are in secret possession of the box, and throughout the 60s and 70s they ran ads in the Sunday Express aimed at getting the church to help them open it. On the other hand, the psychic researcher Harry Price who we will have to spend some time with in a future episode, claimed in 1927 to have been sent the box by a man known only as Mr. F.M. Price had the 12-inch walnut box x-rayed and then opened in the company of one bishop, the Bishop of Grantham. I guess that was a sign of respect. Inside, Price found very little in the way of prophecies. But there was an old gun, some earrings, a couple small books and papers, a nightcap, and most wonderfully of all, a lottery ticket. Neither the Panacea Society's story or Harry Price's would account for why we appear to have been spared the apocalypse of 2004. But there are other explanations. Some say that the box was opened in the 1920s and that Joanna Southcott's child, the second messiah, mind you, was reborn and is living today in the body of Prince William. Talk about marrying up, Kate. The other end of the world, which involved Joanna Southcott, was... Well, no. No. Let's save that one for later. It was the winter of 1952, on a sleepy street in Oak Park, Illinois, the home of Frank Lloyd Wright and Ernest Hemingway, directly west of Chicago. The night was still, dark, and quiet, when suddenly Dorothy Martin shot awake with, quote, 
a kind of tingling numbness in my arm, and my whole arm felt warm right up to the shoulder. Without knowing why, I picked up a pencil and a pad that were lying on the table near my bed. The message Dorothy scribbled down was incredibly mundane. Instructions to her mother on how to handle some flowers at the family home. Except that the instructions came from her father, and her father was dead. Dorothy Martin was less shocked by her hand reaching out and writing a letter from her dead father than most might have been. In the late 30s, she'd lived in New York City, attending meetings on theosophy before discovering a science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard and falling in with Dianetics, the precursor to Scientology. When she returned to Chicago, she met up with Guy Ballard, a mining engineer who claimed the spirit of Comte de Saint-Germain, an 18th century alchemist, appeared to him at the base of Mount Shasta and provided him a drink of wisdom. He and his wife, Edna Ann Wheeler Ballard, who was also called Lotus Ray King, had an estimated million followers when Dorothy Martin stumbled upon their movement, which they called I AM, in all caps. One of the things that separated I AM from other religious woo of the day was that Guy Ballard claimed not just to have met St. Germain and Jesus and Alexander the Great and etc., but also 12 Lords of the Flame. Aliens from Venus. The flying saucer craze was just beginning to bloom, and notions of extraterrestrial visitations, government conspiracies, and New Age mysticism were getting tangled together like knotted bread. So Dorothy wasn't at all surprised or disturbed when her deceased dad took her hand and used it to write a note about proper gardening technique. She passed it along as instructed to her mother, who at best ignored it. No word on how the flowers fared. And I get the feeling that this whole interaction was perfectly in keeping with their mother-daughter relationship. Her mother thinking, oh God, what now? And Dorothy thinking, I bring her a note from her dead husband and she still isn't proud of me. But whatever, Dorothy was impressed by herself. After the flower memorandum, she started trying to reach her father more, employing the automatic writing by which he'd first contacted her. And... She succeeded. Again and again, she took shorthand for her Potter Morbidus. How's that joke working for you? Yeah, me neither. Again and again, she made herself a medium for the messages of her father, but she was dissatisfied. In the afterlife, and maybe in the regular life too, if she was honest about it, her dad seemed to be kind of an idiot and boring too. I mean, here he was wandering some netherworld or another, and all he wanted to talk about was household chores and domestic bugbears. Eventually, Dorothy concluded that he had become trapped in a part of the spirit world that turned its victims into imbeciles, and, deciding she could not save him from this fate, she moved on. She soon found better company in an alien named Sananda, who, it turned out, had been to Earth several times before, once as a first-century Judean named Jesus something or other. Sananda explained that he was a guardian from the planet Clarion, Sananda introduced Dorothy to various other guardians, including one called the Elder Brother, who promised to teach her all cosmic wisdom. But first, she had to amass some followers, Natch. And amass them she did. She made friends of a number of other occultists, New Agers, and UFOologists, all of whom were intent on hearing from the guardians. And luckily for them, there was a lot to hear. Within a few months, Dorothy was receiving 10 and more messages a day. 
and the content of the messages was getting darker. The guardians of Planet Clarion would soon be on their way to meet Dorothy and crew, who called themselves the Seekers. Then, the Guardians would take the Seekers to the utopian planet of Clarion, and just in time too, since the Guardians were also beginning to write about a suicide for all humanity. Sananda, who used to be Jesus, remember, got more specific in early August, when he wrote, in Dorothy's hand, of course, to explain the Great Casting, an event that would scoop the water out of Lake Michigan, tumble the Chicago skyline, and then flood the countryside. Mountains would rise all around the world, destroying cities and farms, and closing in great new seas. Europe would sink into the ocean, while the lost mythical continent of Mu would rise and take its place. The Great Casting was going to be a gigantic disaster, an extinction-level event. Luckily for Dorothy and her Seekers, they would be off-planet that day. After a month of teasing out the date, Sananda wrote a new letter giving December 17th as the date of evacuation, the day the Guardians would come and tractor beam up the true believers before all the mountains and lakes and seas and such. There are a lot of cults out there that are quite a bit like Dorothy's crew, but the Seekers stick out for two reasons. For one, they were the first UFO cult who believed the aliens were coming to take them away. And the other thing that made these believers interesting is that some of them weren't. A team of researchers from the University of Minnesota, led by Dr. Leon Festinger, had heard about the Seekers and came down to Chicagoland to ingratiate themselves within the group. Festinger was interested in what would happen when the aliens failed to show up. Pretty presumptuous, Doc. In the Hollywood film version of this story, you're definitely spending the third act in space. But in the book that Festinger and his assistants published in 1956, When Prophecy Fails, the story went a little more predictably. On December 17th, the Seekers met at Dorothy Martin's house. Many of them had left their families, sold their possessions or homes to be there. They were each given an interplanetary passport, consisting of a blank piece of paper inside a stamped envelope and a password to get on the flying saucer. I left my hat at home. Shortly before 4 o'clock, when the Guardians were supposed to arrive, Martin and crew removed all metal from their bodies. Sananda had explained that this was a safety precaution. Watches, rings, belt buckles, keys. The women even took off their bras, uncertain whether the clasps counted. Then they went out into the backyard, looked up, and... waited. After 10 minutes with no sign, Martin suddenly turned on her heels and walked back inside. Some followed her right away. Others continued to wait, but by 5.30, everybody had given up and returned indoors, where the post-mortem was already in progress. Eventually, they concluded that this had been a test run, a drill to make sure the Seekers were on the ball for the real event, which was coming... when? Soon, Dorothy said, but couldn't be more specific. The group spent the rest of the evening at her house, anticipating some indication, some message of when to expect the Guardians. At midnight, Dorothy suddenly yelled out, They're coming now! And the sleepy Seekers rushed to their feet, again scurrying to remove all metal, and ran to the backyard again. There they waited, still and silent, for two hours. Zilch. The Seekers were getting restless, which, come to think of it, seems like a good state for seeking. They fought, argued, 
vented their frustrations with the Guardians for being tardy, keeping them waiting, disappointing them. The next day, a message was delivered via Dorothy Martin's semi-autonomous writing hand from the Arch Guardian. It was among the longest she'd ever received, and contained the statement, I have never been tardy. I have never kept you waiting. I have never disappointed you in anything, written over and over again. He supplied the Seekers with the final, real departure time. Midnight, December 21st, just hours before Lake Michigan would jump over its shores and drown all of Chicagoland. This was their last shot at salvation. At five past midnight, when the aliens again seemed as though they were standing the party up, one person pointed out that there was another clock, which showed 11.55. Maybe the one they'd been watching was fast. Yes, that had to be it. Attention was then turned to the other clock. Nothing happened when it reached midnight either, but since they'd already been fooled by one fast clock, they figured this one could be similarly off base and waited a further 10 minutes. There was no more debating, no more fighting, no more explaining. The whole group silently shuffled inside and sat there, saying nothing. In less than seven hours, they assumed, they would all be drowned. They stared catatonically ahead as the hours passed, waiting for some word, or else death, to come. At four in the morning, Dorothy burst into tears. At a quarter till five, her arm jolted to life seized a pen, and began furiously writing a new message. The Guardians said that through their act of faith, sitting in wait all night long, the Seekers had spread so much light that God had decided to save the world from destruction. For the moment, God doesn't get a whole lot of mileage out of light, I guess, because soon enough came the rain date. The world would end on Christmas morning, and the Guardians would show up at 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve to spirit away the faithful to Clarion. This time, the Seekers sent out a press release, explaining that they had just averted a global crisis, for the time being, and warning the uninitiated that they had precious little time to get in line. So, at 5.30, on Christmas Eve, the street in front of Dorothy Martin's Oak Park house was choked with neighbors, reporters, and onlookers. As 6 o'clock neared, the Seekers again stepped outside, but this time, they went out the front door, onto the street, singing Christmas carols ready to show their miracle to the world, which they expected to then die shortly after. Mortifyingly, the aliens were washing their hair again that Christmas Eve, and nobody came to rescue the Seekers from either flood, the apocalyptic one that didn't happen, or the flood of press and mockery. Charles Laffid, one of Martin's top deputies, was asked by one particularly persistent reporter why they hadn't been picked up at six, as they said they would be. Their back and forth is simply cringeworthy. Laffid vacillates between saying that the crowd must have scared off the spacemen, or else that the spacemen were hiding within the crowd. When asked why these disguised spacemen hadn't taken them away to another planet, he replied that nobody ever said they would. But then why were you out in the street singing carols? Well, because it was Christmas. After the Christmas embarrassment, the Seekers were done for. Day after day, more of them peeled off from Dorothy Martin's house back to their old lives as much as they could. But many of them maintained their belief in the Guardians, even as they lost track of the group that had given them those beliefs. The panic and excuses, revisions and press-seeking, everything that went into the last week of the Seekers' existence became fodder for 
When Prophecy Fails, in which Leon Festinger introduced a new term into the lexicon, cognitive dissonance. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Recently, I've been checking out the history of the Supreme Court, taught by Dr. Peter Irons, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at UC San Diego. I've got a big hole in my knowledge of American judicial history and another one for the history of Reconstruction, and this course is helping me fill both. I love this service, and I know you will too. The Great Courses Plus has an extensive course library, letting you educate yourself on nearly any topic imaginable. Enhance your cooking skills, better understand your finances, improve your responses to stress and anxiety, and so much more. You can even use The Great Courses Plus to keep your kids learning math, science, history, and art from some of the best teachers out there. All the content is objective and fact-based and easy to access anytime and anywhere. Now's the perfect time to sign up for The Great Courses Plus. My listeners, that's you, can check out any course or lecture for free today. That's free access to their entire library. So don't wait any longer. Sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplusplus.com slash the constant. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. And by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there. They will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. This isn't self-help, it's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you need. What's more, it's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like trauma, self-esteem, LGBT matters, stress, anxiety, or depression. And anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant.
let's talk about someone sensible for a minute. Johannes Stoffler was born December 10, 1452, in a small town in the Swabian Alps of southern Germany. He went to the equivalent of divinity school at the University of Ingolstadt and, after being promoted to magister in 1476, was appointed to his hometown parish. In his spare time, he studied astronomy and made various fine instruments. In 1493, he completed a celestial globe as a gift for the Bishop of Constance. A few years later, he built an astronomical clock and then another globe. Well, probably a bunch of globes, really. We just only know about a few specific ones. Globes and clocks and astrolabes, especially astrolabes, actually. He wrote the definitive text on astrolabe construction, which was used for the next century. In 1507, he left the ministry and became chair of mathematics and astronomy at the University of Tübingen. There, he taught some of Germany's most important 16th century intellectuals, including Sebastian Munster, who published the first German-language description of the world, Cosmographia, and Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's uber-intellectual reformationist counterpart. He published a long and detailed series of commentaries on Ptolemy, wrote up the most detailed astronomical tables of the era, and, in 1518, laid out a proposal for a new calendar system that eventually became the Gregorian calendar that pretty much rules the world even today. Too long didn't read, Johannes Stoffler was not a kook. Although... Unfortunately for Johannes Stoffler, when he was alive, the distinction between the science of astronomy and the superstition of astrology was, well, non-existent. And Stoffler, like pretty much everybody else studying the stars in the early 16th century, believed they had concrete and predictable influences on our daily lives. The most important and profound astrological events, according to Stoffler, and pretty much everybody else, were conjunctions, when objects in the night sky lined up. In 1499, when he was still tooling around as a minister in Justingen, Stoffler and the astronomer Jacob Flom of Alm put out a very impressive almanac, which marked the position of the known planets and stars for many decades into the future. And along with these charts, the almanac included brief editorial notes about interesting astrological events. Flom and Stoffler's Almanac was very successful. It was published in 13 different editions over the course of half a century and informed the work of most of Europe's great astronomers of the era. But the most infamous part of the whole book was a single paragraph Stoffler wrote about the year 1524. And prepare yourself, because however you translate this, it is still an absolute mess. In this year... We shall see eclipse of neither sun nor moon. But in this year will occur positions of the planets well worthy of wonderment. For in the month of February will occur twenty conjunctions, small, mean, and great, of which sixteen will occupy a watery sign, signifying to well nigh the whole world, climates, kingdoms, provinces, estates, dignitaries, brutes, beasts of the sea, and to all dwellers on earth, indubitable mutation, variation, and alteration, such as we have scarce perceived for many centuries, from historians or by forefathers. If you're thinking, I don't know what that means, then good news. You're all right. If you do feel you know what that means, I, I worry about you. 
In the most subdued and literal of terms, Stoffler is pointing out that there will be 20 conjunctions in February of 1524, and that's a lot. If a conjunction were anything other than an arbitrary observance, that might really stick out. It's not, so whatever, but still, to Stoffler and the whole 16th century world, it sure seemed like a big deal. What sort of a big deal was harder to pin down. But as Stoffler said, it would indubitably mutate every animal, nation, landmass, and person on Earth. So, it must have seemed worth chewing on. The real magic of Stoffler's ultra-vague pseudo-prediction lived in the moment he made it. The same printing press that would help his student Melanchthon start a religious revolution with Martin Luther also meant that Stoffler's almanac could spread all across the continent. And because this future was divined not from an English domestic worker or a Chicago housewife or a spit-curled talk show novelty guest, but from the serious work of an esteemed professor, whatever it was he was trying to say about 1524 had to be taken very seriously. In the years leading up to 1524, at least 133 publications were written about it. Most importantly, it was discussed by the Italian astrologer Luca Gorico, professor at the University of the Vatican. Gorico explained to anyone who would read just what they could expect from Stoffler's Great Conjunction. To Gorico, it was obvious. Seven planets all hanging around in Pisces, the sign of the fish? Duh, it's a flood. And not just a London flood, or a Vienna flood, or a Berlin flood, but a second biblical flood. Gorico had pamphlets warning of the flood, capital T, capital F, all over Europe. Not everyone agreed. Theologians pointed out that God promised never again to flood the earth after Noah. Astrologers took umbrage with his interpretation on technical grounds. And Stoffler himself stepped up to loudly point out he had never said anything about a flood, though nobody listened to him. Whatever. The flood was scary and big and attention-grabbing. The stodgy disagreements of intellectuals and priests were boring. So Gorico's interpretation won. He had imitators and disciples all around, from Poland, Spain, England, Italy, all writing pamphlets for the common people about the coming deluge, most of them with really fun woodcut illustrations. Between 1519 and 1523, more than 160,000 copies of those prognostications were distributed around the continent. Leonardo da Vinci and Albrecht Dürer each drew their own fearful visions of the flood to come. According to George Tanstetter at the University of Vienna, people sold low-lying lands at a loss and bought up real estate anywhere high and mountainous. They postponed weddings, reneged on contracts, and let their crops rot in the field. In London, a tall tower was built, with months of supplies kept high above what was feared to be the floodline. Around Italy, the nobles disappeared into the mountains on what they pretended were hunting trips. In Florence, Machiavelli enjoined the women to run away and live with the hermits in the hills to save themselves. Shipwrights all around Europe got rich building flood boats for anyone who could afford them. And along the Rhine, in Germany, Count von Ingelheim had constructed a massive three-decked ark after Noah's, but instead of holding two of every animal, it would hold the Count's family, friends, and most treasured possessions. When February finally rolled around, people were on pins and needles. 
Stoffler hadn't been more specific than to just name the month, and when people asked him to tell them exactly when the flood was coming, he would say, I didn't say there was going to be a flood, and then people would turn around and ignore him before he could complete the thought. The flood could come at any time, people supposed. Accept that, and get a knife and fork ready, because the irony of this is just delicious. In February of 1524, most of Europe experienced a severe drought. In London, it's reported that 20,000 people fled the city at the start of the month, literally heading for the hills. There they waited for a few days before realizing nothing was happening, and then they all just wandered back home again. But one place was cursedly spared from the drought of February. The Rhine, where Count von Ingelheim's Ark stood at the ready. On February 24th, harsh cold rains pelted Rhineland and panic poured just as hard. The Count and his cronies fled to the Ark in panic, but so too did throngs of uninvited peasants who weren't sanguine about drowning in God's wrath while the fat nobles floated around their corpses. They stormed the Ark in blind fear. Count von Ingelheim tried to dissuade them from boarding and was promptly stoned to death. The terrified proletariat pushed their way on, literally over his dead body. And then, the storm cleared. Lesson learned. Alignments of planetary bodies are nothing to worry about. Unless... Did anything strange or unusual happen to you today? You know, anything like, oh, total death and destruction, havoc wreaked, the end of the world, that sort of thing. This is news footage from Fargo, North Dakota, on March 10th, 1982, and it is utterly charming. Well, today's the day that all that was supposed to happen. March 10th is the day when all the planets of the solar system are on one side of the sun. Now, without going into all the detail, that rough alignment is supposed to cause the end of the world and such, the famed Jupiter Effect. The Jupiter Effect was a 1974 top 10 best-selling book by astrophysicist John Gribben and astronomer Stephen Plagman, in which they argued that an alignment of all the planets on one side of the sun, set to happen on, you guessed it, March 10th, 1982, would cause widespread disaster, particularly earthquakes and tsunamis, but severe storms too, and even the acceleration of the Earth's orbit. It was a weird bet to put on paper, since these so-called grand alignments happen every 179 years and aren't generally marked by globe-shattering disaster. The Jupiter effect was a big deal when it came out, but as time continued its inexorable march towards the appointed date, fear and fascination mostly gave way to mockery. By the time March 10th, 1982 rolled around, even Gribben had backed off of his own hypothesis, and what had been a low-grade panic resolved into an excuse for local color reporting like this. So we went straight to the people to find out if they experienced the Jupiter effect. I don't believe so. The weather's a little bit hazy and foggy, that's about all. You haven't seen any massive death or destruction or earthquakes or no, California? nothing like that. I hope we don't. Oh, nothing. Nothing unusual. Now, you're not just saying that to keep everybody calm. No? <laughs> I haven't noticed anything yet. No, nothing yet. Just want to be home with my lady, but I just, you know, gotta go out looking for a job. So what can we conclude here? Well, it seems that one of two things has happened. Either the Jupiter effect has fizzled today, or we're all dead and just don't know it yet. Wow. Fargo is a charming town. 
why don't we all live in Fargo? Maybe it has something to do with the three and a half feet of standing snow on March 10th. Little Hellfire probably starts sounding pretty good around April. William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. From 1982, we're heading back 101 years to one of the biggest ends of the world to never have happened, the apocalypse of 1881. Besides being a very satisfying palindrome, 1881 was a sort of convergence of its own, marking the intersection of three totally separate and distinct end times prophecies. First, there was the work of Charles Piazzi Smith, the Astronomer Royal of Scotland and Professor of Astronomy at the University of Edinburgh from 1846 on. Smith was pretty good at stargazing. He was the first person to detect heat coming off of the moon, made substantial innovations and improvements in telescopes, came up with several clever ways for ocean-bound ships to synchronize their clocks, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Impressive star stuff. That was Smith. Unfortunately, though, he had another hobby at which he turned out to be far less adroit. Pyramidology. He got a bunch of wild hairs from Keats publisher John Taylor, who was also very bad on the subject of pyramidology, and through him came to believe that the Great Pyramid of Giza was built not by the Egyptians, but by Noah. Because of that, Smith figured the pyramid was divinely inspired and set out to map and diagram every last bit of it. And in terms of detailed cartographical and mathematical analysis, Smith did a pretty good job for the 1860s, working out the exact angles of the pyramid's passages, its precise longitude and latitude, height, width, so much more. But as soon as he disembarked from weights and measures, Smith's writing became more unmoored. Comparing the lengths of various pyramid features, he concluded that its builders had used a system of measurement that was almost identical to the British imperial systems. According to Smith, the two societies shared the same inches, the same pints, even the same temperature scale. This was, he figured, because the British people were the true direct descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel, who were kicked out by the Neo-Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. And we should probably stop and contemplate the zaniness of that theory for a second. Let's move on. According to Smith, the pyramid served many godly purposes, but chief among them was prophecy. Almost every number, measure, position, and angle was, he said, a discernible message from God. The most important being the diameter of its great gallery. 
it was 1,881 inches around. Well, we might as well take a minute to consider a few of the many leaps necessary to conclude from that that the world would end in 1881. I guess, then, that Noah, or whoever built the pyramid, Smith had a few other Old Testament theories, not only knew that someone would recognize the size of one room in particular as a stand-in for the date of the apocalypse, but also recognized sometime in the friggin' Iron Age that Johannes Stoffler would succeed in getting the Gregorian calendar adopted in time for Smith to come along. But whatever. Smith's math didn't have to be too convincing, because he had backup from two other prophecies. Granted, one of them was from Pietro Aretino, who was somewhat less than a trustworthy source himself. Aretino was a scandalous 16th century Italian author, known both for his acerbic satires and his body erotica. After he went too far with his 1524 poetry collection entitled Lewd Sonnets, Aretino fled Rome, running across northern Italy trying to keep ahead of an assassin who one of his poem's subjects, a bishop, had hired to kill him. To make ends meet, he blackmailed several of his aristocratic male lovers, threatening to out them. But neither the assassin or his victims got the last laugh on Pietro Aretino. In fact, if legend is to be believed, Aretino got it himself. Supposedly, on October 21st, 1556, while at dinner, his sister told him a dirty joke that caused Aretino to laugh so hard that he either fell backwards and hit his head, had a heart attack, or suffocated to death. And, yeah, he did say that the world would end on November 15, 1881, for whatever that's worth. If the word of an erotic satirist and the strained numerology of a British astronomer who believed he was descended directly from Abraham weren't enough to convince you, there was one last prophecy that heralded 1881 as the end, and it was the most compelling of all. Which, granted, not a high bar, but still. The final and most influential prediction that scared the people of 1881 came from Mother Shipton, sometimes called the Witch of York. Mother Shipton was born Ursula Southiel in a cave near Narrowsborough in... Ah, forget it. None of that's true. It's not clear where any of the details of Mother Shipton come from, but it is pretty safe to say that they are all nonsense. It's possible her legend grew from a germ in a letter written by Henry VIII to Thomas Howard, the third Duke of Norfolk. The Duke was putting down a popular rebellion known as the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, and Henry's letter to him laid out the harsh terms the king wanted to impose on his enemies. Henry told Thomas to kill a whole lot of people and to leave their body parts strewn around the countryside as a warning. In particular, he urged the Duke to kill the Friar of Knaresborough, the Vicar of Penrith, someone called Dr. Pickering, and the Witch of York. That's all we have to indicate any sort of factual, historical basis for the person who, a century later, was being called Mother Shipton. According to the legend printed in her first book of prophecy, she was born in that cave in 1488, and she was, from birth, extraordinarily ugly. That stereotyped image of the witch with a protruding chin, big hooked nose, warts and all? Well, that's Mother Shipton. Nevertheless, according to the story, she married a carpenter named Toby Shipton and spent her adulthood with him, giving fortunes and writing prophecies. The earliest prophecies attributed to Mother Shipton are mostly political, 
They relate to the fates of monarchs, bishops, and aristocrats, or warn of wars and unrest. Her first recorded big score was on September 2nd, 1666, when a fire broke out at the bakery of Thomas Farnier on Pudding Lane in London. The blaze spread for three days, taking down more than 13,000 houses, 87 churches, and leaving seven-eighths of Londoners homeless. Several contemporaneous sources, including the eventual president of the Royal Society, Samuel Pepys, write at the time that the Great Fire of London had been predicted by Mother Shipton. In the 18th century, more Mother Shipton prophecies began to appear, now focused not on local contemporary politics, but on news stories, inventions, and cataclysms. And some of them began to take on a different form, rhyming couplets. In 1862, a new edition of Mother Shipton's prophecies hit the streets, filled with stunningly prescient jingles like... A carriage without a horse shall go. Disasters fill the world with woe. And... In the water, an iron then shall float as easy as a wooden boat. She appeared to predict the telegraph. Around the world, thoughts shall fly in the twinkling of an eye. And even the 1849 California gold rush. Gold shall be found and shown in a land that's now not known. It was incredible. Anybody reading these suspiciously accurate prophecies from hundreds of years ago would be forgiven for thinking Mother Shipton must have been one smart cookie. So, when in the same book she gave another, darker omen, people took notice. The world to an end shall come in 1881. <laughs> Mother Shipper, she said what? Okay, so maybe you didn't believe the Italian porn writer, and maybe you thought Smith's pyramid math was a bit convoluted, but Mother Shipton? The lady who predicted trains? How could anyone ignore that? As it happens, 11 years after the 1862 edition of Mother Shipton, the publisher, Charles Hindley, came out to say that he'd fabricated the whole thing to sell books. But people were about as interested in hearing from him as they'd been in listening to Johannes Stoffler. His version is, even today, the one you're most likely to find if you go looking. Reports say that in the spring of the faded year, English families abandoned their homes for fear of the coming end. They took up residence in churches where they prayed continually for pardon, or, and don't ask me any follow-up questions because I truly do not know, they slept outdoors, on the roadsides or in the fields. Then, as anticlimactically as ever, the world continued on its staid and monotonous course, swinging languidly around the sun with barely a globe engulfing flame over to be seen. The Witch of Yorkshire was a bust. Oh, Except, there's another witch of Yorkshire. One morning in 1806, near Leeds, a woman by the name of Mary Bateman went out to check her hens and found that one of them had laid, ready, an egg. Okay, yes, not very impressive. But upon closer inspection, the egg was special. It looked almost as if it had been etched or something, like words had been pressed through the shell itself. Three words. Christ is coming. Although according to some sources, the egg message was misspelled and actually read, Christ is coming. No matter. 
Over the next few days, people began to come to Mary Bateman's to see the egg and the hen, who continued to lay more apocalyptic eggs, sometimes in front of a crowd. Lucky for them, Mary Bateman was ready to sell blessings to anyone that came around asking, little slips of paper that she said would protect their recipients from the rapture. What a quinky-dink. They were signed, J.C. Born Mary Harker in 1768, Mary Bateman was, you're not going to believe this, a con artist. But she was so much more and so much worse than that. I'll tell you right here that her story ends with her being executed for witchcraft. And I'll further tell you that unlike most people who met that end, Mary Bateman possibly deserved it. When she was 13, her father sent her to work as a domestic in Thirsk, where she seems to have stayed for some number of years. Nothing about this period is known until she was caught trying to rob a woman in York at age 20. She made a run for it and escaped to Leeds, where she took on work making dresses, which she knew little about. She only had a few basic designs under her belt and wasn't good enough to sell above the low class, so she supplemented her income by telling fortunes. She married John Bateman in 1792, when she was 24, and stopped her failing garment work. Instead, she began to say that she was working for a powerful witch named Mrs. Moore, the seventh child of a seventh child. Mary was something of a broker for Mrs. Moore, who seldom saw clients in person. Instead, Mary would deliver their fortunes, or spells, or divinations, or curses on Mrs. Moore's behalf. All innocent enough, but Mary was also stealing from local shops, from fellow lodgers at the tenement she shared with John. She stole silver, she stole silk, she stole food, she stole money. A grieving widow came for her skiering skills, and she warned the woman that her stepson meant to sell off all his dead father's property and run away with the proceeds. To prevent this, Mary told her to sell everything herself and get out of town before the stepson could act against her. The woman followed her advice and left Mary a large portion of the funds to care for her other three children until she returned. Mary pocketed the money and sent the kids off to the orphanage. When a large fire ran through a linen factory in Leeds, killing eight, Mary wandered the town asking for donations to be made for the victims and their families, which she naturally took for herself. Her fortune and spell business became a pretense for elaborate long cons. She told one worried housewife called Mrs. Cooper that her husband planned to sell all of her belongings and furniture and leave. To protect her from this outcome, Mary suggested Mrs. Cooper store everything she had of value temporarily with her. The woman had all of her jewelry, clothing, even furniture moved to Mary Bateman's, who then immediately pawned it all off. Then she moved on to the next stage of her career, poisoning people. She first ingratiated herself with the Kitchen Sisters, who owned a successful drapery. The Kitchen Sisters loved having Mary as a friend, probably because she said she could tell the future, and welcomed her into their home and made of her a regular companion. When one of the sisters fell ill, Mary promised to bring her medicine from a witch she knew, Mrs. Moore. The woman was dead within the week. Her mother made haste to try to get to her daughter in time, but when she arrived, she found not only that her one child had already expired, but that her other daughter was sick now too. Soon, so was she. In ten days, both of them were dead too. While Mary told the people of Leeds that the Kitchen Sisters and Mother had died of plague, their doctor suspected poisoning. But with no surviving family left to give consent, he was unable to perform an autopsy. Mary was free. 
and free to sell off everything the Kitchen Sisters had owned, from their house to their shop. This was maybe a little too bold. Although Mary had reason to be. After all, she was caught over and over, stealing the silver, the silk, the cash, and nothing came of it. The worst result was that she'd have to give stuff back and say she was sorry, but she could charm her way out of anything. But after selling off a whole home's worth of her victim's housewares, her reputation was a shambles, and she was forced to move out of her home at the top of a hill in Wells Yard to a small one near the river in a charming neighborhood known as Black Dog Yard. And that is where her hen started laying its prophetic eggs. For a brief while, Mary Bateman had a budding new business in Black Dog Yard. People came from miles around to see the eggs and their inscription, Christ is coming. When they arrived, she would proselytize and implore them to buy some JC charms as protection for the coming tribulation. It was a plan she had concocted after attending meetings for a fringe religious sect called the Southcottians. As in... Johanna Southcott. And she might have gotten away with it, too, if Mary Bateman hadn't run up against her old nemesis again, doctors. They came to inspect the Christ eggs and quickly determined that the writing had been made via concentrated vinegar, which dissolved the eggshell. All Mary Bateman had to do was write the words, wait a few hours, and then shove the egg right back up the chicken before the tourists came by to watch her lay. Some sources note that the crowd of believers which had gathered around the hen were extremely hostile, even violent, towards anyone expressing skepticism. Yet, when the facts were laid bare, they too let Mary Bateman go without punishment. Later that same year, William and Rebecca Perigo came to Mary seeking help. Rebecca was having chest pains, and they feared she was cursed. Mary Bateman suggested a two-stage treatment. First, Mary would sew some guinea notes into Rebecca's mattress, which would, I don't know, buy off the cursed spirit. William later testified that this was a get-rich-quick scheme. Whatever. She told the Paragos she'd sew some money into their bed and asked to be compensated for it, which they did. The other part was dietary. Mary concocted a special healing pudding for Rebecca and William to eat. Obviously, it was poisoned, and Rebecca died an agonizing death. William discovered the truth only after paying small sums to Mary for nearly two years, when he opened his dead wife's mattress to discover sewn into it not banknotes, but cabbage leaves. Mary Bateman was arrested and her home searched, where stolen goods and trophies from a lifetime's worth of pilfering and poisoning were found. She was convicted of murdering Rebecca Perigo in just 11 hours, at which point she bought herself a few more by pleading the belly. They couldn't execute a pregnant woman. The judge brought on a fresh jury of 12 married women to adjudicate her claim. Mary Bateman had caused a minor end-time stir with her eggs three years earlier, a plan she had come to by following the example of Joanna Southcott. But unlike Joanna, Mary Bateman could not fool anyone into thinking she was pregnant. And so Mary Bateman was hanged to death on March 20th, 1809. Then her body was taken to the general infirmary, where it was exhibited for three pence a gander. 2,500 paid the admittance fee, and after that, her skin was flayed off, tanned, and sold in strips as good luck charms, protections against the apocalypse, which Mary Bateman was still making, even from beyond the grave. This 
there's a secret message buried in this episode. How many times did I say charm? How about of course and obviously? Add up the letters of the sentences beginning with well, so, and but to decode this portent. Music from today's episode from Lee Rosevear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Kevin McLeod. Voice acting supplied by the ravishing Heather Chrysler. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to some really great podcasts you should really check out. But today, I'd like to implore you to also check out Heather's latest project, Art Infusions. Every week, she's producing short, pithy, fascinating videos telling the stories of some of history's most famous works of art from the model's sides. Who was the girl with the pearl earring? Who was Degas' little dancer? What happened to the model who posed as Ophelia in that poster you had in your college dorm room? The stories are full of sex and intrigue and tragedy, and man, they're really good. Heather is great. I like her. Go check it out. Search Heather Chrysler, that's C-H-R-I-S-L-E-R, on YouTube, or follow the link in the show notes. Special thanks for this episode go out to our Patreon supporters, especially Bill Kirkpatrick, Amanda McMall, Kathleen Kerber, Michelle Picard, and Christian Braun. If you'd like to join them in helping make this show possible and get access to bonus content and such, go to patreon.com slash the constant. Or tell a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1919, fears of a world-ending sunspot caused retailers at the Chicago Cold Storage Company to break out their emergency plan. A 32,000-pound block of cheese, which they distributed around the city. This has been The Constant. If we're all going to die, Chicago's going to die with cheese. That is a promise. For in the month of February will occur 20 conjunctions, small, mean, and great, of which 16 will occupy a watery sign, signifying to well-nigh the whole world, climates, kingdoms, provinces, estates, dignitaries, brutes, beasts of the sea, and to all the dwellers on earth, indubitable mutation, variation, and alteration, such as we have scarce perceived for many centuries from historians non 